Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. This week, we reach beyond our studios and bring you interviews from Wyoming PBS's Wyoming Chronicle. Almost everyone in the state has a story of hitting wildlife while driving or near miss. How some in the state are working to make that less common. Wyoming is leading the charge with regard to wildlife crossings. Back in 2011, Palestinian American poet Naomi Shihab Nye came to Wyoming. We revisit that interview as a new conflict in the region flares up. I would say I think you need a little more patience uh, because I think oftentimes war is extravagantly entered into uh, without exhausting all the other possible channels. Join us for those stories on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Motor vehicle collisions with wildlife in Wyoming have become a huge and gruesome problem as the 21st century arrived. Then a group of Wyoming forward-thinking leaders, including our guest today, decided to do something about it. We'll speak with Nate Brown of the Wildlife Fund. I'm Steve Peck of Wyoming PBS. This is Wyoming Chronicle. joined today by Nate Brown, who's the operations manager for Wildlife Fund. Nate, I want to talk about Wildlife Fund and what your extremely diverse and busy job is. But first, the obvious question is, what is this thing behind you here that uh, we're looking at? Steve, that's a, that's a wildlife highway crossing or a wildlife overpass. It looks like a big tunnel that's been constructed there, but it's actually a bridge. It is. Why is it there? So typically these are created to reconstruct an old migration corridor or ridge line that wildlife used to cross over this area and go back and forth between their summer range and their winter range. Steve. We're here now north of Pinedale, yep. south of Jackson. And this entire uh, mini region here of 20, 30, 40, 50 miles perhaps, maybe more than that, is actually at the uh, the center of the wildlife crossing uh, effort really nationwide, is that fair to say? Wyoming is leading the charge with regard to wildlife crossings. It's safe to say that in Wyoming it's driven um, driven by research more than anything. Uh, Tell us about that. I mean, there are numbers that told people in Wyoming who care about not just wildlife but highway safety as well that this would be a good idea. Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of research being done for years and years with regard to migration in Wyoming. Um, anyone from Wyoming obviously knows that big game animals uh, migrate constantly in Wyoming. It's, uh, you know, it's very challenging for, for food sources particularly, um, getting from summer range to winter range. And so, um, you know, the University of Wyoming, the Haub School, uh, folks like the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, the Wyoming Migration Initiative, um, all of those folks have been doing a lot of research for a lot of years and they, we've known about migration, but now it's backed by GIS data, collaring information. There's all sorts of technology that's added to this, Steve. There are a couple of these in Wyoming now and they've emerged over the past 10 years or so. And it's a new and uh, bold way to solve what is known to be a big problem in Wyoming. What, 
who uses that that uh, structure? Steve, it was basically designed for large ungulates to use. Um, it's also used by cattle. This particular one um, is in an area where there's cattle that get driven back and forth and in across this area. But the main focus of it was the large ungulates, yeah. pronghorn and mule deer primarily here at Trappers Point by Daniels Junction near Pinedale, Wyoming. That's a classic spot. This is in the, the path of the pronghorn. Um, these were, you know, no, it was a notable spot for pronghorn and mule deer fatalities. So it's good for the wildlife because this is where they live. They were here before us. They know already they have to cross the road. They have to get from there to there. Yeah. They can't help it. Yeah, and it's actually, you know, it's ingrained in their yeah. very existence. It's, They've been doing it for centuries. It's an instinct for them to go to where the food is at a particular time of year. Yeah. So now we put this road in between and it's caused them a problem, Yeah. the animals. It's caused the people a problem because there are thousands, I'm not sure people understand this, thousands of wildlife automobile collisions. Yeah, wildlife vehicle collisions yeah. are, uh, are you know, very common in our state. I think one of the earliest memories I have is a member of my own family when I was very young was yeah. killed in a rollover vehicle accident. In the so. case of the, of the person you mentioned, this was someone who had swerved to avoid yep. a pronghorn antelope on yep. the road. Rolled the car, the spare tire, you know, killed my cousin. And, and like I said, it's uh, one of my earliest memories. And I think that anyone in the state of Wyoming that's lived here very long, if they think about it, they probably know someone, Steve, that's been down that road or had a family member or friend lost to a vehicle collision with, you know, likely a, you know, a large ungulate. The data that uh, has been collected showed some gruesome numbers. Yeah. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, 6,000 is, is an average low-end number that's basically a number of total animals retrieved from the highway crossing area where you know the actual right of way mm -hmm. for YDOT occurs and so um, the, you know the YDOT guys they're always constantly cleaning up these roadways so people don't see this carnage but what people don't realize is there's a lot of animals that have been impacted by cars that get off of the right of way out into the sagebrush they're either killed by predators as a result of their injury or they have a slow lingering death as a result of an injury those animals are never counted um, there's there's estimates as high as as four times the 6,000 average number that we we go off of now. So nobody really knows because that's data that's hard to gather. Well, you told capture. your story. Mine story is not nearly as bad as that. But I've hit a deer twice in my life. Both times it was at night. Both times on a narrow a, a two lane road. I spun the deer around both times and it vanished. Yep. It wasn't dead on the highway, but I was impacted by a car at speed. I, slowed down, slammed on the brakes, but I thought, well, I wonder if that deer is going to make it. Yeah. And what you're telling me and what, what I think we know is it very well might not have. There's definitely a large, a large volume sure. of those animals that definitely don't make it. So the wildlife deaths and injuries is part of it, but there's also property damage concerns beginning with automobiles, right? Yeah. And the, and the impacted fence lines along the edges of the road, property damage that cars end up hitting. Um, you know, the deer that end up flying and damaging someone else's car that's in the un oncoming lane. Uh, those, those are actually around $50 million a year annually just in our state alone. So that led uh, smart minds to think about ways to do this. Well, why don't we just lower the speed limit? Why don't we just put 
rumble strips in? Why don't we just put flashing lights in? Won't, won't that they've solve tried, this They've tried it all, Steve. They've tried literally all of it. And, you know, another thing I want to touch on is as modern technology, cell phones are absolutely another issue. You know, we're all distracted nowadays from our, our driving, you know, the reality of it is, is it plays a part in this as well. People just aren't as attentive on the roadways as they used to be, and then they're driving faster. The roads are, are better. Um, it's a long ways from point A to point B in Wyoming, Steve, and so, um, you know, that's kind of a typical problem as well. So these other things were tried. They were effective partially. But then the idea comes along to do something big, and I hope it shows up on camera. This is the first time I've ever seen it in person. It's big, and it's designed to just keep as many animals as possible from even having to face the decision yeah. of crossing the road because they can cross there. Who came up with this, do you know? I'm not exactly sure who you could give um, credit to that initial concept. I think, you know, we've been using overpasses for our own personal reasons, you know, for vehicle reasons for years and years. I think it only makes sense to people, but one of the you know the challenges and that's where the wildlife fund comes in is is how do you talk people into funding these kinds of things they don't really see the value in it unless they've actually experienced you know a motor vehicle collision themselves or wildlife um, vehicle collision so it's one of those things that um, unless you're really doing the research and digging into it um, it's kind of out of sight out of mind and we're all apathetic that's another thing that's kind of an interesting thing i think you know you see I alluded to YDOT doing a great job of cleaning the carnage up along the road. I think the case could be made that it would be more impactful if you left it there. Nobody would like it. It would obviously create other issues and, and not be safe. And a lot of, you know, raptors and large birds of prey would suffer as a consequence of that. But, you know, the idea that we remove them out of our sight definitely doesn't help make the cause. Right? Interesting point. Wildlife Fund is not the Game and Fish Department. No. It's not the Wildlife Federation. It's not the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. But you have uh, uh, interaction with many different agencies. How would you describe what Wildlife Fund is? You know, we're a partner foundation to the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. We were created by the commission and the department in 2019 to serve a, a unique role in funding projects like this and, and just being free and easy with, with regard to, to funding. People can dedicate funds to a specific project. If this is your end game and this is what you like, if it resonates with you, you can dedicate all your funding and take advantage of a 501c3 tax deduction um, and still fall within the strategic vision of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. When you're talking about funds like this, there's simply no way that the state is gonna be able to budget for it. That's exactly correct. But you find, Wildlife Fund finds, that there are people who would want to help pay for it, individuals, foundations, other entities, yep. but you have to have the mechanism so that it can get from them to the project. This is what Wildlife Fund can do. That's really the whole impetus and the whole, the whole reason for the Wildlife Fund is, is to facilitate partnerships for impactful things that you know, help our wildlife in the state. And you know that's what it is. I mean, people generally don't like to fund government organizations anyway. You know, they, they feel like, you know, it's always an issue. They don't know where their money's going. We have a 90-10 um, 
uh, model. So 90% of every dollar that's donated to the Wildlife Fund goes straight to projects. That's my next question. No one can accuse Wildlife <laughs> Fund of being this big bloated bureaucracy, right? There's you and one other person. <laughs> that's right. We have two employees that are full-time, an entire volunteer board. Yeah, Chris McBarnes, the president, is, is the first employee. He's been um, doing a great job. Um, I actually was out of state for several years. I'm a Fremont County, Wyoming native. Uh, as many people know, um, it's a challenging to make a living in Wyoming, and I went elsewhere for a while, but I can say that, you know, one thing that's unmistakable is Wyoming brings you home, Steve, and I, you know, I found a, a home with the Wildlife Fund, and, and that's what I honestly believe, you know, is the main reason why I took this job, and I can say that is, is it's a home for everyone who loves wildlife. And that crosses a broad gamut of people, of types of people, yeah. of philosophies that people have. Wildlife can be a unifier. Are you finding that? Absolutely true. And I think it's long, long awaited. I mean, I think you know, it's a polarizing subject. Wildlife is polarizing. You have, you know, long-term heritage folks from Wyoming who've um, subsisted off of wild game. Uh, you have ranchers who have fed wild game and, and you know, kept them on their place all their lives. And, and sometimes that's troublesome. They're eating their haystacks. You know, the Department of Game and Fish has to deal with those issues all the time on a daily basis. So uh, what's neat about the Wildlife Fund is all folks from all different walks of life, energy industries, um, all, all, all encompassing, every, every type of energy industry, um, you name it, business entities, recreational businesses, tourism businesses, um, private groups, private ranches, private, you know, um, partnerships across the state, you know, family trusts. Knobloch has been a huge funder of these. I'd, I'd like to, you know, bring them out. Um, you know, those are the kind of folks that have noticed that the Wildlife Fund is the kind of, of organization and the type of organization that's inclusive of all ideas and concepts. It's not that, we're, you know, not that we're definitely, you know, we're still within the strategic vision of the Wyoming Game and Fish, but we, we listen to everybody, anyone who has an interest in conserving wildlife habitat and uh, funding research for wildlife can have a home with the Wildlife Fund. Well, this, this particular area, Steve, is actually designed to funnel cattle to the crossing. Okay. Yeah, and also exclude wildlife at the same time. So you can see the, the shorter fence here and then the taller fence on the perimeter of the actual easement um, the whole idea is to keep the wildlife that are typically out in the wide open space off of this highway area. Okay. But this is particular to the cattle driveway and a multi-use and multi-use concept that all of these organizations are working together to make happen. So it allows the guys that, that run cattle on public land to have a place to funnel these cattle up onto the crossing and then safely across the same roadway that we're concerned with wildlife. So, so there's no, it's not cattle drive season yet, but it will be. Absolutely. And there are times when people coming by here might see hundreds and hundreds of uh, head of cattle walking right where we are. Absolutely, Steve. So before the crossing was here, what did they have to do? The typical deal is you set up flaggers on both ends and, and say a Hail Mary and hope for the best and try to get them across the highway. Was that part of the planning of the Wildlife Crossing originally? Did, did the, the concept include realization that could be used this way? Yeah, absolutely, Steve. And I think, you know, one thing that the Wildlife Fund and the Game and Fish have done a good job of is recognizing the role that ranching plays in wildlife conservation. 
Um, sometimes that's not necessarily the rancher's choice, but large expansive open spaces are what it takes to winter wildlife and for wildlife to have successful feed um, to make it through Wyoming's harsh winter. So uh, the ranching community plays a huge role in that. So it only makes sense that we partner with them and accommodate them in any way that we can to try to help make this work for everybody. How then do the, the, does the wildlife itself needing to cross get to the bridge, so to speak? So these are classic migration corridors to begin with. So that's where the habitat uh, biologists of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department and those folks have, you know, and they've been the fish and wildlife in certain places, in certain cases. They know that they want to generally come this way anyway. As you can see, this is a large ridge between Daniel and between Bondurant, that's kind of general area. So um, this is a corridor that we basically essentially just put back. It was, all, it was always here until we bisected it with this highway. So we've just kind of put it back. But as you can see on both sides, um, these lower fences that are more like the size of your typical cattle fence, they also have a high uh, a pole on the top, a horizontal pole on the top to make them more visible to cattle or to wildlife. And then after the cattle have grazed and been trailed through here, then these gates are generally left open as well. So the whole idea is to kind of funnel the wildlife naturally in a, in a corridor that they're already used to using and have been over you know generations have learned to use and then allow them a safe passage across this highway. The horizontals on the top rail of the fence are generally much more easily seen by wildlife and one of the things that happens as, as we went through this past winter obviously is, is you have three or four feet of snow most of that fence is covered up and so um, imagine trying to jump out of a swimming pool I use that example for people sometimes and you suddenly know, it's stand in you know four feet of water and see how high you can jump right so that's what they're encountering when there's a lot of snow uh, that top rail gives them a visual aid to help them see where they need to, to reach to get over safely but you know the point is is to to utilize it for cattle when that's done prior to the big migration push in november that starts mostly in november um, then those gates will be actually opened up and tied back to allow safe passage and easier passage. You said this was could be a $35 million project? That was the uh, the cost of the entire US 189 highway crossing project, was all, which also included these the exclusionary fencing, the jump out structures. But we're talking, comparing that to an annual property damage of cost million. of $50 million just for one year. Yeah, yeah. So there's some bang for the buck here. Oh, absolutely. And then, you know, we're not even putting a price on the, you know, or a value there. It's easy to put a price on wildlife because we know what our, our license costs are. We know what those, you know, the revenue that hunting and fishing brings to our state. Those are all tangible things that they get measured pretty often. But, you know, how much is one person worth, you know? that dies on one of these spots. I mean, that's, that's a, when you, when you throw that into it, then it really, it really kind of evens can't be that. Calculated. Yeah, it can't be calculated at all, so. Protection of wildlife is a big term that can yeah. cover, that does cover lots and lots and lots of things. Beginning or including keeping so many of them from being struck and killed by cars. It's a never ending topic and Wyoming's perfect for it. It is, and this is a classic example too, Steve, of different end users having impacts on wildlife. The folks traveling this highway, many of them probably never have hunted before. 
you know, but they were basically bringing this idea to the nation's attention um, and showing that this actually absolutely has an impact. All this traffic also has an impact on wildlife. And so this is a, a great way for multiple groups of people across all different, you know, thought processes, all different ideas to be involved in helping protect a resource for There's all. There's no question that these some of these vehicles we're seeing are on their way to or from Grand Teton National Park, Yellowstone National Park, the Jackson Hole region. That's a, that's a given. We're also in one of the biggest energy producing parts of not just of Wyoming, but of North America here as well. Yep. We have farm and ranching here. We have small business here. We have conservation interests here. Yeah, and, you know, and we're happy to engage all of those different um, you know, groups of folks, because at the end of the day, that's what the wildlife needs. It needs, you know, folks that are willing to group together, not on polarizing talking points, but to get together on the main talking points, like what can we do right now to impact the legacy and the heritage of wildlife in the state of Wyoming, you know? You found it has been determined just through the initial construction of these first few of the crossing projects, the results have been profound, haven't they? Absolutely. They're 80 to 90% effective immediately, Steve. And, you know, that's that's the kind of win-win philosophy that the Wildlife Fund and the Wyoming Game and Fish Department are going to support wholeheartedly, along with YDOT as well. I mean, anything you have that good of a return on an investment, you know, it only makes sense to jump on board. So there's these two immediately that are that are right here. These are the first two of the state. Um, Highway 189, the South Kemmer 189 project, which will include a major overpass like this. Um, one of the other projects that's on the radar, it's US 26, up by Dubois, between Dubois and Crowhart. There will be an overpass there as well. And so there you have not only the deer, the amber, you have the bighorn sheep as well. Absolutely. The only reason the US 189 really took priority is because of the Wyoming Range mule deer herd and because of Terra Power's uh, nuclear plant construction. So um, there's estimates as high as 2,500 additional employees during the construction phase for that nuclear plant down near Kemmer. On a statewide basis, uh, I've seen a map where there have been dozens of places identified that would be, or would be advantageous certainly to do this. Oh yeah. Is that part of the the longer vision of wildlife finding. It absolutely is, and it, you know, it takes huge partnerships. Um, as you can imagine, they're not easy to, to fund. They're not easy to put in place. You know, we have a short construction season. Wyoming's a tough place to build build high fence and exclusionary fencing and jump outs. And so you, you have a short window to do them in, but uh, I guess, you know, from my perspective, the wildlife fund and the game and fish and YDOT are on a good course. Um, we're, you know, we're setting the bar high and, and just chiseling away at projects as we can and as we can obtain the, the kind of private funding partners that we need to make these a reality, Steve. Yeah, you start somewhere. Here's where we started. Look what we did. Yeah. And it proved that it's, it's possible to do and that it, the payoff is fantastic. Uh, we also want to, you know, showcase that these are a, a win for human safety. There's a lot of folks that travel to the state of Wyoming and get injured in wildlife accidents. I'm sure they didn't think that that would be a, a possibility. Here's what I remember about my, the first time I had this collision with the deer. It didn't really damage my car. The deer survived at least the collision. I don't mind saying I felt awful that yeah. it had happened. I, the last thing in the world I wanted to do was to hit that. 
yeah, the remorse and the, you know, the emotional, you know, it is, it's hard. You and I are both long time, old time Wyoming residents, me a little older time than you. <laughs> We've seen what I think has been the worst winter overall in much of Wyoming and certainly in my lifetime in terms of, of how, of the duration of it, the relentlessness of it, the cold temperatures and the snow has that, and we, and we know coming out of that, the mortality numbers for pronghorn and mule deer in particular just been terrible. Does that affect the thinking or the progress or the concept of the wildlife crossing project at all? Absolutely. Um, after this epic winter of 2022-23, it, it absolutely showcases how important these are because, you know, it makes that number 6,000 animals a year doesn't seem like that many in the broad scope of things until you start thinking about 80% mortality in adults. And there's definitely herds of pronghorn and herds of mule deer across the state, you know, in selective groups. I firmly believe we'll bounce back, but it might take a decade to do that, Steve. But this structure could help that happen. It's it actively will. helping that right now. It definitely is. And that's the thing is, you know, it, when you build a structure of this scope and of this magnitude, you know, you're in it for the long haul. And that's why research is so important and doing this right the first time. A lot of things that I've encountered in my, my news career that I had and my a television career that I'm having now, I ask myself, what are future generations going to think about what we did? And, and too often, I'm afraid, the question they're going to ask is, why in the world did you do that? Or why did you let that happen? Or why didn't you do this? I think this is something that future generations are going to look at and be proud of what we did. Absolutely, Steve. And I think, you know, one of the things that YDOT does well and and some of these other entities, the Migration Initiative and folks like that is, you know, they're using technology to give people a glimpse of that. There's trail cams that you can get on. Um, if you look up Trappers Point Highway Crossings online, um, you can watch in real time, you know, what these cameras are showing wildlife utilizing these resources. So it's so cool that we have technology to be able to shore up and back up the decisions we've made um, collectively as a group. And I think another thing I'd love to showcase about these that, you know, it's kind of an afterthought. We don't really have a lot of mortality or, or problems with people hitting small mammals, small predators, raccoons, badgers, all of those different things. But um, one of the things that's immediately obvious when you look at these webcams is you have bears and, and you know, mountain lions, bobcats, skunks, all sorts of wildlife that are utilizing these crossings that were built not necessarily with them immediately in mind, but they um, use it too. But it's a secondary benefit. You're a Fremont County guy. You mentioned you, uh, but you've lived, worked, been out of state, visited other places. Where does Wyoming? How does Wyoming stack up in the wildlife arena? Where do we rate? Well, in the lower 48, Steve, I think we're you know we're unmistakably at the apex of all of it. I mean, you know, the waters all start here. You know, you have the Rocky Mountains. Um, Yellowstone National Park, one of the you know greatest uh, you know conservation ideas that it was ever known to man. I mean, they started the national park concept right here in Wyoming. Um, unbelievable groups of wildlife that migrate hundreds of miles across this state. Uh, many different large ungulates, birds, all types of species, and so it only makes sense that the Wyoming Game and, De and Fish Department and folks like the Wildlife Fund and some of these other great organizations and NGOs that we partner with 
work together to kind of set the bar for the for the whole country and even for the world i believe because you know that's at the end of the day the resource is you know it's only so much there's only you know there's not an unlimited resource we've noticed you know 40 percent decline in the snowy range and wyoming range mule deer herds um, you know for reasons all across the board different biological reasons um, one thing we've identified is we know that killing does and fawns on the interstate and on the highway systems in our state has a, a tremendous impact. If you've been listening to the news at all, you know there is a new Israeli-Hamas war happening in Gaza. As news develops, we look back to an old interview with Naomi Shihab Nye, a Palestinian-American poet. In 2011, she visited Wyoming and spoke with former host of Wyoming Chronicles, Jeff Ogara. He spoke to her right after the Arab Spring raised big questions about the possibility of an independent Palestinian state. They speak about peaceful ways to resolve conflicts at that time that may seem impossible now. But could a poet's perspective serve as a guiding principle going forward? Naomi Nye gets a lot of attention because of her parentage. Her father was Palestinian, and he and her grandmother lost their home in Jerusalem during the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. So she brings a perspective to the struggle over Palestine between Israel and Arab states that we don't normally find in the headlines of American newspapers. That perspective is by no means one-sided. When she talks about her letter to any would-be terrorists, you'll see what I mean. Naomi and I recently toured Wyoming as part of the Wyoming Council for the Humanities program to promote civility. In a conversation with her, well, it does exactly that. You find yourself dropping your arguments and listening for the human story. And you begin to hope that there is a humane solution to the intractable problems of the Middle East. But let's listen to the poet. Well, Naomi, you're, you're the American-born daughter of a Palestinian father, right. and Palestine is very much in the news these days as the UN considers whether to recognize a homeland, a state, for the Palestinians. We're going to have to talk about that, of course, but before we do, you're, you're a poet, and words are what matter, and words are where you create your art. So I want to give you an opportunity to o sort of open this up with a poem, if you wouldn't mind. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. During a war, Best wishes to you and yours, he closes the letter. For a moment, I can't fold it up again. Where does yours end? Dark eyes pleading, what could we have done differently? Your family, your community, circle of earth. We did not want, we tried to stop, we were not heard by dark eyes who are dying now. How easily they would have welcomed us in for coffee, serving it in a simple room with a radiant rug. Your friends and mine. Very nice. Thank you. I'm, I'm pretty careful what I say about poetry. You know, you don't, nobody needs the commentary, especially not from me. But I, I have to say, I start off a little intimidated because I read your, 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 in your book, The 19 Varieties of Gazelle, the last poem says a little something about uh, reporters and interviews and s kind of suggests that you 
been through some bad experiences in this, well, in this way. Well, uh, my father was a newspaper journalist, and okay. so we read newspapers with extreme interest in our house. And uh, the weird experiences I've had have been primarily uh, newspaper-related, never radio or television. Okay. Well, <laughs> I used to work for newspapers. Right, so. right. Where something is taken completely out of context. No one wants to quote you no, accurately. No. I think you say it in the poem. Right. After that, you don't want to. You think I better be quiet? I shouldn't say so much. But as a writer, you don't ever want to be quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as a poet, I will say, you end that poem, I'm going to read a bit of your poem, simply because I love the ending so much. Thanks. Say it, say it as if word count, words counted, one, two, the shoe still has a buckle. Right. I mean, that's a wonderful inversion of a nursery rhyme. Right. Just, anyway. The children's rhyme. And, and I love how things stay in our minds and pop up sometimes when we need them, and you're feeling a little lost in language, and suddenly a nursery rhyme comes back, right. or the line from a poem you memorized when you were seven. Sure. It's amazing how language does that. Yeah. Mm. Well, you, you read a poem that had a, a, a little political content to it, really, yes. and, and I guess let's talk a little bit about this. You, you've sure. spoken out rather bravely about the conflicts in the Middle East and things like this, and, and in both poetry and po prose, and I think you've been speaking both to the Western world and to Arabs. Do you feel sometimes that that's, that's as big as the art, the poetry that you're doing? Well, I think it's very important for people to remind one another that war is not always the best answer to any problem. And I think uh, but poets generally tend to be anti-war because we treasure detail, and war is something which erases details uh, in a kind of harem scarum tragic way. Hmm. And so most poets uh, think about other things we could have done. Could we have asked more questions? Could we have had longer dialogues? Uh, could we have thrown all of our money into libraries and education instead of weapons? I mean, these are the kinds of, poet, uh, of comments that, that poets often make yeah. to one another and often write out of. So since there has been so much conflict, um, relating to the Middle East in recent years. I have tried to write about it and um, keep reminding all of us uh, there are other ways, and I do think there are. Well, you, you talk a lot about and write a lot about the power of words, mm -hmm. and I guess one can't help but think when you're confronted with the, the kind of violence, the kind of issues involved in warfare, right. whether some people aren't going to say, oh, words, they're nice, nice sentiment, you know, nice idea, nice thought, but is it enough? I mean, how do you answer that? I would say I think you need a little more patience yeah. uh, because I think oftentimes war is extravagantly entered into uh, without exhausting all the other possible channels. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, through, through history, we've seen so many cycles where, you know, one war kind of ignites another war, or we've certainly seen uh, how cycles of violence uh, trigger more cycles of violence, and uh, I, I just think that we should learn how to behave as countries. I wish we could uh, the way that kids learn to behave in schools, uh -huh. which is often in a much more civilized way. You know, you, you learn you have to go to school and get along with people who aren't exactly like you. Right. And if you have problems you can't solve, you go to the counselor. You get a mediator. You know, someone comes into the situation to help you, uh, but often as nations. Um, we tend not to, to develop that sort of strategy for, for getting along that we would hope for in our own neighborhoods or towns or you know, yeah. counties. 
You want to give us a little history? I, I want to start right off by pointing out you're from Texas. Well, we I'm from Texas that. now. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't born there. My parents had no history there. Uh, they moved there after we left Jerusalem after the 67 Six-Day War. Mm -hmm. And uh, my father had left Jerusalem a previous time after the 1948 war. war. Sure. He left in 51. His family lost their home. They lost everything they had worked for. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and among Palestinian refugees, of course, there were some who entered off into the big world to try to make a life elsewhere, and then there were some who stayed in very difficult circumstances and, and tried to uh, regain some sort of balance where they were or went into neighboring countries and so forth. Um, Texas was, I guess, a surprise for, for our family. Um, I'm still in San Antonio where we moved to. My, my parents and my brother ended up moving to Dallas. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think Texas shares something with, Wy shares many things with Wyoming, which is a sense of spaciousness, uh, uh, a, pr a certain kind of land pride or place pride, which, which uh, other states often look at with, with almost a kind of envy or intrigue. Uh, Wyoming, by the way, as a state, I think that has a very, very positive a stereotype. When I meet people who've never been to Wyoming, oh, I want to go there. Yeah, like now, all the Texans. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, Texans <laughs> may want to go to Wyoming, but us. I don't think Texas has such a positive stereotype these days necessarily, right. but, but I do think Wyoming still does. Yeah. And um, when I first came here 25 years ago and was with my husband and baby son at that time, and we traveled all over the state driving yeah. and really had time to stay in some different communities and visit schools, uh, we just loved the the uh, rich mixture of people here and and uh, just the sense of history and time. Yeah. Well, let me go back to a little more of your family history. Right. So in 48, um, your grandmother and your father, did they all come out? Did your grandmother come out no, as well? No, no one came out 51. except my father. Okay. Yeah, my mm -hmm. father was the only one who came out at that time. And, and the rest... Uh, and you would meet your grandmother later when I you met her back. later. Okay. Correct. I met her later. And they moved, my grandmother and her grandfather and my father's brothers and so forth moved to a tiny village okay. that was in the in, in what's still called the West Bank, mm -hmm. um, in a very contested area right now. It is an area that has been uh, continually oppressed. Uh, when people talk about um, Israel being the only democracy in the Middle East, I, I think it's often good to point out that it's a democracy if you are an Israeli Jewish person, but if you are an Israeli Arab person, it's not quite as much a democracy, and if you are a person occupied, in the region occupied by Israel, right. it's not a democracy at all. Sure. So that's why Palestinians at this moment are, with, with a great deal of patience, I think it's taken a long time, attempting simply to establish a situation of mutual respect, self-determination. Mm -hmm. We need our own place. We need people to acknowledge that we are here. Right. We are not a phantom. We are not a figment of someone's imagination. We were here. And uh, we kind of still need to be here, a lot of us. Right. So it's a very, very basic uh, human right we're talking about. Palestinian-American poet Naomi Shihab Nye speaking with former Wyoming Chronicle host Jeff Ogara in 2011. The rest of the interview when we come back. This is Open Spaces. We're halfway through a 2011 Wyoming Chronicle interview with Palestinian-American poet Naomi Shihab Nye. And, and you wrote a, a young adult book, uh, Habibi, yeah. am I saying it yes, correctly? Yes, that's right. About a young woman and her family who moved back 
to Palestine. Is that, right. in fact, the experience that your family had? Well, there, there are elements of fact in the book. I did think of it as fiction, and sure. the Jewish boy um, she, had, she develops a big crush on was someone in a fantasy of my imagination at that time. You know, I would have imagined meeting him. I have always had very many close Jewish friends in my life, so it wasn't hard to imagine him at all. Sure. But, um, but the book is a mixture. And one thing important to me from the book is that, that uh, the young people say they're tired of telling the same old story. Yeah. They want to make a better story. Mm -hmm. And I really think at this moment, uh, Palestinians are trying to make a better story okay. for all their own people. And how do you feel about this effort going to the UN and attempting to get recognition there? Is it, would you call it constructive in terms of breaking this logjam between the Israelis and the Palestinians? I would actually call it long overdue. Okay. I think it's high time, why not? Mm -hmm. And so many other countries are willing to recognize, well, why not? I mean, you know. So I think when people have mutual respect, whether it's in a neighborhood or between countries, yeah. uh, things t tend to get better. You right. know, if you acknowledge someone else's pain and their existence and realize, well, you know, they have a family and I have a family, we need to figure this out. Yeah. Um, I, I think it could lead to better things. I think it's time to make a leap. Okay. Yes. If we make the leap, and I'm, I'm going to sort of speak for what I think a lot of Israelis would say, that oftentimes when land has been returned, land they picked up in the Six-Day War, for instance, uh, Gaza, uh, they find themselves being attacked from those lands in various ways. And, and that's obviously a real fear right. that they're surrounded by people who have in the past attempted to invade and boot them out. How do you respond to that? Well, I would say if you look at the circumstances and conditions under which um, people in Gaza particularly, but also people in the West Bank, have been living for all these years, it's not hard to imagine why certain extremists go a little crazy and become violent in any way they can. Yeah. I think it could only be better to recognize uh, they need a place in which they feel safe, we need a place in which we feel safe. Let's respect one another, let's do something imaginative and positive yeah. with one another. And by the way, there are so many people, citizens on both sides, mm -hmm. who want this to happen. Right. You know, often the United States in a circumstance like this acts as if it's really our opinion that matters most. But when you talk to the people who are living there, so many of them would say it's high time we, we live in a different circumstance together. Yeah. Um, I would say that you know attacking one another is never good. Right. And when, when you look at the tragedies that Gazans lived through, um, two years ago, or yep. two and a half years ago, mm -hmm. hopefully something like that will never happen again either. Right. Right. Now you wrote a, um, a, a letter, a published letter, to any would-be terrorist, which actually got a lot of attention, a lot of interest after 9-11. Right. And, and again, it, you, you've spoken about this to both sides in this conflict many times, that right. the violence is not constructive and it's not getting anywhere. Right. I guess I'm going to ask you to return to that just for a moment and say, what, 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 what can you do there? Can words like a letter, a poem, make a difference in all this? Well, you know, you never can really weigh the results right. of anything you write, and like how many people did that affect, or who actually read that. But when I heard that it had shown up, translated into Arabic in Middle Eastern newspapers, right. I thought, well, okay, fine, I hope it was a good translation. Mm -hmm. When I heard that it had shown up, you know, posted in grocery stores in different countries and things like that, I mean, you could never know who hears something. Um, I do feel that in my own anguish as an American who loves the United States right. and as a person who also loves the Middle East, uh, it was critical that I had to speak up at that moment and say, you know, look at all the other people you've affected. Mm -hmm. Look at all the innocent immigrants to the United States who are going to have harder lives now yeah. because of what you've done. Look at all the people getting on airplanes right. who are going to have harder time. You know, just everything you could have said. So there was a great sort of familial anguish 
about you know these people betrayed people like my father, mm -hmm. who has always believed in peace and dialogue, uh, and who has worked all of his life against this sort of stereotyping right. of Middle Eastern people. What a tragedy that you know s criminals could could betray so many thousands, hundreds of thousands of other people. Yeah. Um, you can never know where something goes. Yeah. You can only wonder. And, and you don't seem to get discouraged. I mean, your campaign is a campaign of words, which <laughs> some people would say, well, that hasn't changed anything. Right. You've been doing it for a long time. Uh, right. But again, but you don't seem discouraged. I'd, I'm not discouraged, Jeff, because so often writers receive letters from people or emails from people we've never met, yeah. and they'll say something deeply meaningful mm -hmm. about how their own life was helped by a poem, maybe yeah. not even your own poem, maybe a poem you recommended. Right. And so you end up hearing, you know, people do respond to words. People do feel uh, that words can um, change them and comfort them. And sometimes I think, you know, we need more, more storytelling. We need Israelis and Palestinians getting together and saying, how do you hurt? Yeah. How did you suffer? What do you need? Right. Uh, there are so many great groups, by the way, that I've tried sometimes to support in any way my books could. Groups like Seeds of Peace or the Village Oasis of Peace in Israel, where there is profound and elemental respect among the people. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there have been many projects that were experiments that have worked and that continue to this day. And I just wish politicians could look at them with more um, vigor and energy and think, let's do this on a larger scale now. It's yeah. high time. We, we've talked about this almost at the polemical level, and that, that is a disservice to your poetry, I have to oh, say. Well, that's all right. Because the poetry is, is, is very finely observed. There's a lot of really beautiful images that come out and surprise you. And it's, a, it's an interesting combination mm -hmm. to me, being able to talk oftentimes just about common, the common places of life, but also about some of these things that people don't know about another culture and do it in this way with this kind of language. Mm. So I'm going I'm to give you another chance to read another poem. I hope you will as we, as we get to the end of the interview. But talk Thanks. a little bit about yourself as an American writer. I, I'm interested in the, in the multicultural writers that have emerged that are really making quite, they become quite a force in the United States. But I think still people still think of like Mark Twain and Huck Finn and things like that as, you know, the kind of true American writing. American writing. Yes. But it's different now, I think. Well, writing is different now. It's a very rich, textured fabric. Yeah. And there's room for voices w representing all different kinds of American backgrounds and um, immigrant backgrounds. and. And I think students often feel encouraged when they hear someone speaking out of a, uh, a, a personal history that is not, par ex is not exactly like their own, but is somehow parallel to their own. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so we need to keep uh, championing and sharing uh, voices which represent the, the rich possibility that this nation has been. And uh, you know, there, there are also so many opportunities for exchange now. How uh, high school students can post their poems online and get responses from sure. students all over the country. Or I can send my, I, I recently did a dialogue with poets in Baghdad. Uh -huh. And it was incredible. It was real time and real screens. We could see each other, hear each other. And just to ask them questions, you know, how, ha how have words helped you through the tragedy of the past um, 10 years for you and, and the disruptions in your country? and. And, and having them express their experiences through poetry was deeply moving. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you find that identification. I think in Habibi, you have the father figure at one point say that when he hears of Native Americans, yes. he feels very sad. He does, and so my father always did. My yeah. father felt the Palestinian story and the Native American story yeah. had a lot of similarities. Right. And another group of people who feel the same are the Hawaiians, where I've worked quite a bit in Hawaii. Really? And, they, okay. and there's a strong identification those three groups, which sure. a lot of people wouldn't even imagine. Good. Yes. Well, listen, I want to give you a chance ah, at the end of this so to give much. us one more poem, and we'd much appreciate it. You're very kind, Jeff. Thank you I'm for everything. Dropping my papers on the floor. This is called Always Bring a Pencil. Okay. There will not be a test. It does not have to be a number two pencil. But there will be certain things, the quiet flush of waves, ripe scent of fish, smooth ripple of the wind's second name, that prefer to be written about in pencil. It gives them more room to move around. Wonderful. Thank you so much for Thank being Thank you with so us. much, Jeff. Yeah. I appreciate your listening. That was former Wyoming Chronicles host Jeff O'Gara speaking with Palestinian-American poet Naomi Shihab Nye in 2011.